0: precision medicine is it hype or help fact or fiction welcome to precision insight this is a podcast series where the most influential thought leaders and innovators in healthcare sit with me to chat about the latest technologies and tools of precision medicine what is coming up in the near future if you want to know more about this incredibly fast-moving field of research and development stay tuned Today, I'm joined by John Papasturgio, a pharmacist, business leader, educator, and pharmacy innovator. John owns and operates four Shoppers Drug Mart locations in busy downtown Toronto, where he leads innovative research, including one of the first community pharmacist-directed pharmacogenetics clinics in Canada. This effort, and others like it, generally aimed at exploring expanded roles for the community pharmacist, have led to a handful of awards and recognitions, including both the Ontario Pharmacist Association's Mentorship Award and the Canadian Pharmacist Association's Canadian Pharmacist of the Year in 2014. In 2016, he won first prize at the International Pharmaceutical Federation's 76th World Congress of Pharmacy and Pharmaceutical Sciences event in Buenos Aires, in addition to the Ontario Pharmacist Association's Voice of the Profession Award and the Pharmacy Practice Commitment to Care Award for overall patient care. In 2019, John was named the International Forum of Advancement in Healthcare as one of the top 100 healthcare leaders globally. He was also presented with the OPA Award for Excellence in Research and Academia. John can be heard regularly on Zoomer Radio and on his top-rated podcast, The Pharmacists Are In. John, welcome to the show.
1: Yeah, it's great to be here, guys. Thanks for having me.
0: It's always a pleasure speaking to you, John. and. I love hearing about both your work in the community pharmacy and your work in research. And obviously, you're out in the community talking about it quite a lot. Before we jump in and talk about the specifics of your work and where you see the field heading, I actually wanted to take a step back and ask you about the community side of it and your grounding in the community via your work as a pharmacist. And, you know, really ask, what does it mean to you to be a pharmacist and a leader in the community? And how do those intersect?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I didn't see my career taking this path. You know, I don't think anyone really knows where they're going to land. But I entered pharmacy school because I knew I liked science. I liked medicine. I liked the idea of interacting with people. On the flip side, I always wanted to be a business person as well. And I didn't really find any other profession that kind of met both those criteria. So I kind of ended up here. I actually started my career in, in hospital pharmacy and that's where most of my background and research came from you know i had some great mentors in hospital larry jackson artemis diamond Toros. they really kind of trained me gave me the focus that's required to be an academic clinician and then this business opportunity popped up in greek i remember shoppers was expanding and i remember larry at that time saying, john we gotta let you fly i think the hospital really there's a lot of bureaucracy You're really held back with what you can do as an individual because it's a huge institution. And being able to operate my own business, I was able to make way more decisions and then really get to know the community. I'm in the Greek town and I mean, I landed that first store because I was Greek and they wanted a Greek speaking pharmacist because it was in the heart of the Greek community. And very quickly, we grew to be the busiest pharmacy in Greek town by far. There's no one even close now, but servicing the needs of most of that community and that You know, Greektown has changed now. It's evolved. It's a lot of young professionals, young families, older, senior, like a mixed demographic, but we are the hub of it. And if COVID and the pandemic showed us anything is when everyone shuts down, your community pharmacist is still there chugging away. We've had COVID scares. We've had reduced hours, but we never shut down once. And I'm really proud to say that. We've had our doors open every day throughout this entire experience. And did we have to scale back clinical services, focus on dispensing a bit? When the supply chain was compromised and we were you know having this run-up on drugs and people were hoarding, absolutely. But I think we were there day in and day out when a lot of the other professions took a step back, went virtual, shut their doors, and there was a lot of fear about going into hospitals, right? People didn't want to go to the emergency room because they didn't want to be around other sick people at that time. So we were the go-to destination, and I think we still are. Come to my store right now. Is about a hundred people lined up outside waiting because we still have the space limitations in place, right?
0: Mm-hmm. It's wild. I mean, you brought up three ideas there, right? That the pharmacist is usually someone who's interested in science, medicine. They are interested in connecting closely with people, and, and oftentimes, I, I hear this from a ton of the pharmacists I speak with. They have a real interest in business. There's an entrepreneurial streak in in pharmacists, and it's great to hear how you've connected that back down to. The community, what would you say? This is a little bit off track from where we were going to go, but what would you say to pharmacists out there who are maybe earlier in their careers and feel a similar connection to a community, some entrepreneurial drive, and they also like that scientific thrust of yeah, what could be done I mean, with research?
1: I'd tell them this is the place to be, really. I mean, the profession is evolving very, very quickly more in the last couple of years than it had in the last 50 probably, but we still are, in effect the most important, I think, healthcare player in the community. We're there, we're open, we're available. People know you, they trust you, they trust the pharmacist more than anyone else. So that isn't going anywhere. I think our profession's going to evolve, definitely. I think drug distribution's going to disappear. I think we're already seeing that. I'm piloting a program now where a big chunk of my scripts are going to Central Phil. But what that's doing is freeing up time for the pharmacists. It's freeing up time for them to spend a little bit more clinical time with the patient talking about their medications or doing a pharmacogenomic test or doing a point of care diagnostic screening test or something like that but we're freeing up time to really meet the healthcare needs of the community the business side is going to be there as well we've got big front stores we pretty much have food offerings now and everything else and that's part of the business also and if you want to be a pharmacy owner i think you're gonna have to manage both but as a pharmacist that traditionally where you see the guys sitting behind the counter kind of counting pills, that's gone. It's already almost gone. I think people are still trying to hold on to that, but we cannot compete with the cost to fill of the automated dispensing centers. They do it cheaper, more efficiently, safer than we can. And that's contributing to the sustainability of pharmacy. What did we see You know, a couple of weeks ago now? Amazon's opened up their online pharmacy in the US. It won't be too long till they're here in Canada. So the distribution of drugs is going to be a commodity. It's going to be entirely commoditized. What we need to focus on is the clinical services and being there in the community for our patients.
0: Yeah, that's fascinating. I mean, how does that translate into a typical day today then? Because obviously we're in the point of transition between the state of a lot of fill happening in the community towards a lot of fill happening in a centralized way. What does that look like for both you and your team on the ground? Well, the, in the yeah,
1: well, if you flash backwards to, you know, when I graduated, really what we we're doing, and if you saw a scope of practice, you'd fill a prescription, you'd counsel your patient, answer some C questions, you send them on their way. That was pretty much where where we limited our, our scope to. Now, you know, we're 2020 here. What are they doing upstairs right now? Well, I've got a lineup of patients that are here. To do COVID testing, we offer that service now. So appointment-based, but they're coming in and out every 15 minutes or so for various reasons. So asymptomatic COVID testing, flu vaccination. I mean, we're running out of flu vaccine right now, but we're doing in our prime about 500 injections a day. And then a host of other clinical things. Point-of-care diagnostic testing. We offer a health tab service here, a wellness program. where We're able to do 21 biomarkers, things like serum creatinine, total lipid panel, a1c all these things where we assess the wellness of a patient it helps us better manage their pharmacotherapy and also screen for chronic diseases so we got that program running this sky's the limit medication review pharmaceutical opinions all these things i've got a clinical pharmacist here that full-time that just keeps them busy another one that's solely doing covid testing right now and then another one that's dispensing so we've changed the way We've operated dramatically, and I think we've changed the expectations of our patients. They know they can get some of these things done now here, and they're coming and seeking those services out.
0: That piece of it is so fascinating that as you change the, the way the practice is done and you expand scope in the community, the community responds to it and starts demanding it of you and expecting it. That's a very interesting
1: oh, yeah, shift. absolutely. Yeah, the number of calls I get. To have a vaccine, there's just no way I want to go to my doctor's office for a flu shot, right? They've learned how to come to us because we're more efficient at it. We get them in and out quickly. They don't have to wait. They don't have to take some time off work. They can come in after hours. Same thing with COVID tests. I mean, it's one thing if you're symptomatic, you got to go to the traditional assessment centers. But if you're asymptomatic, we get them in and out in 10 minutes, right? You know, we screen them. They're in and out. Now we offer a program for travelers, right? So we've partnered with Air Canada and WestJet. If you're an international travel traveler, you're coming to your pharmacy to get that COVID test done so you can go on your trip. I mean, these are all great things for pharmacy as a profession. And I think we focus a lot of time on the negatives, generic drug reform, deflating margins. Uh, That ship has sailed. I tell audiences this all the time. You got to get out of that mentality and kind of look at where we're going. We built an entire business. I mean, we're talking about everything else here today, but around pharmacogenomics. I mean, we started this five years ago now, but we are the go-to, I think, place to get a pharmacogenomic test right now in Ontario, probably in Canada.
0: I love that you pivoted to that part of the discussion, and Mm -hmm. and we're going to come back to that in just one sec, but just finishing out on your business here, you've been doing this for a while, and along the way, a lot of transformations happened. Has anything about it really surprised you as these transformations have happened or how the practice has developed inside of these downtown locations?
1: Yeah, I think it feels like things are happening very quickly now, but this has been quite a road, right? So I thought, you know, we were talking about first year pharmacy school, we were talking about clinical practice, this and that. I think the reimbursement has taken a while, which always slows things down because patients in Canada are not used to paying for any healthcare, And I think we're changing that mindset slowly, but I think it's dragged us behind. I think we should actually be further along. There's a lot of variability in what type of services pharmacies offer. I think that actually holds the profession back. You could come to pharmacies and get a whole suite of services, and you could go to others and really still not get a flu shot, right? And that concerns me as a profession. I think we got to all become aligned, and that makes it much easier from the advocacy perspective when you push for more scope. You know, I have sat at the table at these meetings with stakeholders, and they'll say, yeah, we'd love to give you more scope. But hey, we gave you smoking cessation a few years ago and you did nothing with it, right, as a profession. So it's just an example of it's simply getting authority, getting scope, doesn't mean anything. You've got to build a business model around it so it's sustainable, so people understand the value of it, your staff pharmacists have bought it, and then I think really you get practice change.
0: Yeah, I know a lot of our listeners are going to resonate with that. We need to build a business model around the expanded scope. You brought up pharmacogenetics and the work you've done in it a second ago. Maybe just walk us through. What is it you've done in that area and how did you get started there?
1: I mean, I remember I was sitting on a, a committee uh, this is going back probably six years ago now. We're at the Ontario Pharmacists Association. It was the Professional Practice Committee and I had a colleague of mine, Brian Gray, who practices out in Thunder Bay and a company came in at that time. The company's name is the same, Genuine. They had a new product. It was an ability to do kind of a A pharmacogenomic analysis with the idea of optimizing drug therapy. And this was quite novel back then. People were talking about genomics, but really I didn't understand where it fit in practice. So, you know, Brian and I thought, you know, chatted about is this something that could work, whatever. And then we decided, hey, let's try to partner with these guys. And we did. And Ruslan, who's the president of that company, is very open to working with pharmacy at that time. We ran a couple of pilot programs where we started offering it to patients, tried to get their perspective, see what they thought. This was a very big change for pharmacy. Now we're not only doing a point of care test, but we're sending stuff off to a lab, getting the results back, bringing patients back. It was quite a complicated process. It wasn't as streamlined as it's become now, right? So my first instinct was, okay, let's see, will this work? Is it something we can fit in our workflow? And will pharmacists actually use the results to change therapy? And that's, I think, the most important part. It's one thing to offer a test. It's another thing to do something with the results. So that was the idea behind our first paper, where we wanted to really see if it fit into practice and what kind of interventions pharmacists were making. That paper was published a few years back now in the Journal of American Pharmacists Association. And uh, really what we found was, yeah, pharmacists can do it. They can do it pretty well. They pick the right patients. They were intervening at a very high rate and they were making substantial interventions, changing doses, discontinuing therapy, you know, adding additional therapy based on the results. So that was the first time I really felt that, hey, we're onto something. Pharmacists are the best suited to offer this service. If they don't offer the service, uh, someone else is going to take it from us. And I really believe that. And I still believe that. I think we should be further along than we are in this space also, and you're starting to see other professions kind of become interested in this and the vendors reaching out beyond pharmacy to other players to say, Hey, are you guys interested in offering the service?
0: That's fascinating. The point you make around the data itself isn't the important question. We know we can generate data, even generating insight from that data. Okay. So what you have to say, will that get translated into action? And who is going to be best suited to translate that into action? The, the point around pharmacists being, we really think, best suited to do so it strikes a lot of chords with us. So it sounds pretty clear what questions you were trying to answer in this initial program, really just will it work? But what about today? When you look at today and the questions outstanding on rolling out pharmacogenetic testing in community pharmacy practice, uh, what do you think is outstanding?
1: Well, I mean, that was the the big gap in the literature was, okay, that's fine. Pharmacists can do this. They can do it well. They can intervene. But are those interventions making any difference, right? And we were getting a lot of pushback early on from physicians, from payers, from everyone. Ah, that's that's fine. I would have came to that conclusion anyways, right? And our response was, yeah, maybe you would have after five trials. What is that costing? how many days off work or how many times you have to discontinue or throw away a therapy and how many, you know, side effects does the patient have to endure? The whole goal here was to get people on the right therapy quicker, right? To optimize therapy as fast as possible. And we know definitively in disease states like depression, the quicker you get patients on the right therapy the better they do long-term, right? Less short-term, less long-term disability. There's a lot of evidence for that. So I think the next question we wanted to answer, you know, after, hey, can we do this stuff, will it work, is what are the outcomes? If we run a a randomized trial and we do it properly, will there be a difference between the controlled group and the intervention group? And they're really, in other words, isolated data in certain spaces or whatever, but never in a community pharmacy setting in the real world. I think the study that we put together, it was very well thought out. It was very closely monitored, but it was happening in the real world within the context of a busy community pharmacy. It's not like we had a some group of people that were just running the study. This was our community pharmacist. We had obviously a research coordinator, but it was happening within everything else in the pharmacy. So what we did is we designed the study. We got some, funding from Green to do this. And we had two arms. It was standard of care plus a genetic test. And the focus was only patients with depression and anxiety. And we picked that cohort of patients because we knew we could follow them with a good group of uh, scales. So assessment skills that could be done relatively easily by the pharmacist in the pharmacy through follow-up. So we could follow these patients after our interventions. And we wanted to keep Everyone as blinded as possible. So at the beginning, once you get enrolled, everyone got a swab. So patients didn't know if they were in the pharmacogenomics group or the control group. The pharmacist didn't know I would randomize them. I mean, the clinical pharmacist would eventually find out when the results came back. But otherwise, they were intervening as they would normally in those patients. So within the context of a standard of care, hey, patient comes in, it's not doing very well on their anti-anxiety medication. What are you going to do? If you didn't have a pharmacogenomic test, you trial and error, maybe suggest something else, do a clinical assessment of the patients, follow up with the physician. That was standard of care and that's what they were doing. The only difference is those patients were being followed up after the intervention. So a baseline one month, three months and six months. That's the only thing that was really different in the control group is generally pharmacists don't use scales like the PHQ-9, that 7 We also showed That there's probably a lot of value in doing that in pharmacy, but it's not really the standard of care. But we had to do it in order to follow up with the patients. The only difference in the intervention arm is we got the pharmacogenomic results back within three or four days, allowing the pharmacist to use that information to make a recommendation to the physician and get them on a a therapy if it was deemed necessary. Everything else was the same. We didn't tell the patients we had the results. We tried to keep them as blinded as possible. Occasionally, they'd find out from their physician or whatever, but for the most part, I think we maintained the blinding pretty well. And then we followed those guys up at baseline one month, uh, three months, and six months. And again, our primary outcome measure was the PHQ-9, which I think is really the gold standard for assessing patients for depression and anxiety. It's a nine-point scale, a nine-question scale, very, very easy to administer. And I think the results were quite impressive
0: just to run through that, what was the difference you saw? uh, Yeah.
1: It'd be great if if I could show you a graph because it blew our mind actually. So what we did is the two groups were pretty much exactly the same. When we started about 105, 106 patients in each group, average age, low 40s, 42 there. And then our baseline PHQ-9 in the control group was 13.4. Treatment group was 14. So Both groups, uh, statistically no difference. They're a PHQ-9, for anyone listening here, of 13 or 14. That's moderate to severe disease. So that would require initiated therapy on these patients if they weren't already on it, right? So what we did now is we swabbed them, did our interventions, depending on where they were, and we followed them. And what we found at the end of the study, we really blew through our primary outcome measure. We achieved statistical significance. The control group went down. Remember, I said from a 13.4 to an 11, which we saw. That's a pretty good improvement as well. And we think this is not really a placebo arm. There was follow-up by the pharmacist. So we thought there, hey, there is some good value in these assessment skills as well, right? Doing these skills, following up with patients regularly. That alone may make a difference. But in the pharmacogenomics arm, those patients went from a 14 down to an 8.9. That's almost no pharmacotherapy if you look at what that means clinically, right? So a big difference between control and intervention. Like I said, we blew away the significance markers. And I think for the first time, we have a great paper that suggests, hey, when armed with a pharmacogenomic test, all things being equal, these patients are going to do much, much better. So papers are about to be published, very exciting. I'm hoping to get that out uh, by the end of the month, or uh, end of the year for sure. But I think it's going to stir things up a little bit in the space.
0: Very exciting results. And all things considered, I think that was an excellent job of talking through a chart over a podcast.
1: <laughs> that's that's <laughs> so, what you would do with that.
0: <laughs> Yeah, no, and I think that's excellent. You saw some clear improvements among that cohort. Are there any particular patient stories that jump out to you or that you recall?
1: there's so many and i present on this topic all the time i find that nothing really resonates with the audience until you get to the cases because they're like what's this guy talking about pharmacogenomics if they've never offered it they don't really know what i'm talking about they can't conceptualize it because they haven't seen this stuff but what does resonate is those patient cases and we have so many but one that comes to mind is this gentleman that had literally for the last 10 years tried everything and he was a patient man he was giving everything a 30-day trial, but always the same kind of side effects, insomnia, stomach upset, nausea, vomiting. He really was giving the meds a chance. They had trial and narrowed a few things, but he had one of these weird genetic profiles where he was a slow metabolizer for pretty much everything, and then an ultra-fast metabolizer for a couple of the other genes. So the physicians would be ultra-cautious because of the side effects, so that when they would pick a drug that was probably good for him. They'd start at a way too low dose, so it wouldn't work. So finally, we did a genetic test. We were able to optimize this therapy. After like 10 years, this guy was doing much, much better. And he came back and, you know, what he said resonated with us. He said, you know what? Beyond all this, now I know this wasn't all in my head because he'd been going through this journey for so long. People are saying, can't be that every drug's not working for you. This stuff's got to be in your head. And he had heard that from pharmacists, physicians, right? And uh, really, we were able to show, no, the drugs that you were being put on weren't the best option for you. And I'm not surprised you were having challenges with them, right? Stories like that, I think, where we get people that have been struggling with their pharmacotherapy for a long time and we're able to get them using a genomic test, you know, on the right therapy, usually in a first or second try, that type of stuff's priceless. And this gentleman still, we see him still all the time. And he's doing great. And it's like a fine example of how this can be used.
0: That's such a good story. And it's so jarring to think of 10 years on that trajectory. It reminds me of a story I heard from genomics program leader at a large academic medical center in the US. We were talking a few days ago, and he brought up this idea that a lot of psychiatric patients and also chronic pain, they hit a point where they feel like they're at a dead end. And no one really believes them. They say it's in your head or your or drug-seeking behavior. And in both of these areas that pretty high overlap, a lot of comorbidity, these patients get really stuck. And a lot of their providers, they do want to help them get pretty stuck as well. I think that story really resonates. you see many people coming through for chronic pain? Uh, yeah, and do you know, yeah
1: absolutely. And uh, there's so much comorbidity with chronic pain and depression and anxieties. A lot of our patients in the trial and beyond the trial have those comorbidities, right? So obviously we know that when you run a pharmacogenomic test, now you have the ability to better assess their pain medication as well, right? We tried in the study to avoid any of those compounding variables, but in clinical practice, you see it all the time. So you're doing a test and you're not only managing their depression, anxiety, but you're managing their pain, their GI issues and everything else as well. And that's the great value of these tools that they allow you to intervene across sometimes a couple of therapeutic areas, which is very useful.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And it's one thing there that this has to get translated. This started out as research. It has to get translated into, you know, actual day-to-day party or business. What does that translation look like? And you know, how significant of a role is it still playing today, you know, at, at any of your locations?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I mean, I think what happens in the context of a trial or where you have funding and this and that you have the ability to offer to a large group of patients. I mentioned this early with any clinical service. Canadians, uh, unfortunately, are used to getting a lot of their healthcare for free, right? So this is not something that you can offer for free all the time. It still can be relatively expensive. I think a ton of value for the dollar spent for sure. But where we're going to really see an uptick now is as the, the payers come on board, and we're starting to see that. So we've always had a group of patients that are willing to pay, but it's still a smaller group, right? And in one of the studies, we asked them, what would you be willing to pay for a test? And it ranged anywhere from $50 to $1,000. And what the willingness depended on was what happened with the test, right? So if we intervened, and did something great, the willingness goes up, but it's not always so black and white. Not every test is going to show you the world, right? But you have to set those expectations with patients as well. It's another tool and a series of tools that the clinician has to be able to make a better decision. So I think we still see a steady stream of patients, both uh, cash paying, some with third parties, some that have flex benefits and we're able to build to their flex plans. But it's got to go beyond just my pharmacies offering this, I think, for third-party payers really to buy in. We need pharmacists as a whole to say, hey, there's a ton of value here if I offer this service, how am I going to get behind it and market it? You got to remember, patients don't know what they don't know. There's not a group of people out there saying, oh, I'm going to go get a genetic test from my pharmacy. They're not used to getting that service there. So my team has to spend a lot of time selling the service still. It's time consuming. It takes a lot of discussions. People, they hear genetics and they worry, are you going to tell me I have cancer, or diabetes, or this or that, right? They don't really understand it. So there's time that's involved in selling this service. So as the payers come on board, as the banners and chains come on board, they're gonna help with a lot of that marketing. And my goal is that it will become like a flu shot. Patients are aware of the service and they come in seeking it. And I think when we get to that point, it becomes a lot easier for pharmacies that aren't great at offering these kind of innovative services to decide, hey, maybe I will offer because I'm getting asked about it, right?
0: That's a big piece is the payers coming on board, which we're seeing a lot of and happening very quickly. But then also those pairs leaning into the community pharmacies where there is this workforce. One thing we've talked about in the past, John, is the idea of threading pharmacogenetics through a medication review or something that can spot more than just drug gene interactions you know in that setting. And that I think you put that to me one time as a an opportunity for the pharmacist to have multiple interventions they can make in a short period of time, which really helps. But what are your thoughts on that, on building pharmacogenetics into something that is more medication review-like?
1: Yeah, I think that's ultimately where we're going to land, right? This will be part of a broader kind of intervention that's being made by the pharmacist. So I mentioned it a few times, pharmacogenomics is one piece of it, right? So it's not the be-all and end-all. You could have a genetic test, but then the clinical picture doesn't match what you're seeing in the genetics because there's so many other variables. Liver function, age, sex, weight, concomitant medications, right? Historically, we've been addressing these things one at a time, right? We're trying to make decisions based on whichever may be impacting the clinical scenario the most. But really, what you want to do is take a holistic approach. And so, okay, we have the ability to look at all these variables now and now come up with the best option for the patient. So, I can easily see this stuff being built into pharmacy software and everything else. So we're not only looking at genomics, but some of these other variables that you may have information about and then making recommendations based on that. And I think the pharmacist right now is the best suited to do that because they're the ones that are already trying to take all those things into consideration when they're making decisions. The challenge is you don't always have all that information, right?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I love this conversation and what you've done with pharmacogenetics and the vision you have for it. If we project that forward, and you said five years from now, and obviously, I think your team, you must be pretty happy with the, the great work they're doing. What would you hope to see them doing five years down the road as this transformation progresses?
1: I'd love to see this become standard of care, especially in some therapeutic areas. So it's not something that you're offering a here and there, but it's something that you have access to for every patient, I think, as costs come down to offer these type of tests, I think we're going to start seeing more and more of it. You know, as the technology evolves, we may have access to this stuff just routinely, and it's going to make a huge difference once that becomes the norm. But it's going to take some time uh, until we get there. I think uh, where we'll eventually be is if you sit down with a patient in a pharmacy, you're going to have access to everything, their labs, the genetics. So you can really make... uh, a more firm or sound decision because you got all that information available to you and we're getting there we're getting there certain areas you're seeing pilots where we've got access to lab work other places like here we've got point of care diagnostic testing that allows us to get access to that stuff as well so i think there will be a time where the pharmacist isn't taking pieces of information from here and there and trying to throw them all together to make the best possible decision i'm hoping it will just be available to them so they can really use their subset of skills to impact patient care.
0: Yeah, I hope so as well. Final question here, and thank you so much for coming on the pod. Is there anything regarding pharmacy practice in the community or precision medicine that I should have asked you about? You know, is there something else that you think is important that we haven't highlighted here today?
1: No, I think uh, the next step though really is around collaboration. How are we going to get everyone aligned on this? Because If we're all doing different things, it's going to take forever, right? I could be offering a service in one way with a certain technology and like it's almost happening here right now, like I'm running five or six different things, right? And it's challenging for the staff that are working in a very difficult, clinical, busy environment, right? So I think at some point we need someone to step up. It may be the chains or the banners or it may be a pharmacy organization to harmonize some of this stuff. So if you're going from one space to another, you you have access to the same information. And I think I get it. It's early on, you know, there's going to be innovators that are going to lead the way, but we need to get the profession as a whole trying to get organized and going towards a single direction. And that's going to have to come from, I think, our advocacy bodies, our professional associations to say, okay, we're championing this or we're going to champion pharmacogenomics, point of care, this or that. So how are you all work together to make it as seamless an integration as possible? Because I think right now, that's one of the big barriers. It's we're just all over the place. And going from pharmacy to pharmacy, you're seeing different things happening, right?
0: Yeah, I couldn't agree more. John, if people want to hear you talk more, they want to hear more of these insights, where can they find you?
1: Well, I mean, I do a lot of speaking. So if you get uh, invites all the time, I think most of it now is virtual. So A lot of the pharma companies have gone from our traditional drug dinners and conferences to virtual sessions, so I'm there. Our podcast always has new segments coming out, The Pharmacists Are In. You can follow me on LinkedIn. we got a lot of cool information there as well, but it's a pleasure being here, guys. I really appreciate the invitation.
0: No, I love having you. Have yourself a great day, John, and we look forward to talking to you again soon. You too.